Ahoy! It's your boy. And today is Sunday, November 5th, and time is flying. I feel like I say every semester that, wow, this semester went by so quickly. But uh, I can't, yeah, I mean, we're really kind of in the last push here. I got about maybe four weeks before finals and maybe, you know, we have like a dead week where we can all prepare for our tests, which is great. I don't know that all schools have that, Um, but at least at Berkeley, we have a dead week where there's no lecture and we have a week to prepare for our finals. Uh, So that's great. Uh, So that'll happen in the beginning of December. And right now it's just kind of that last leg of the race where everything's kind of coming together. And I got to say, I'm feeling, you know, today in this moment, uh, check in with me in four hours when I'm like staring at the ceiling, trying to fall asleep and my mind is racing. But at least in this moment, I feel very optimistic about things. In that, I mentioned I started on my thesis a while back. I admit uh, I probably only glanced at it a couple times in the interim uh, between when I started and this last week. But I've been I told myself, I, I'm, well, I'm telling myself I have to, and this is true, I have to write 10 pages a week uh, to get to the 40-page mark uh, by finals. Uh, I'll still have two weeks to kind of look back and brush up and, and revise, hopefully. Um, I'll actually have to check in with my advisor about that, exactly when they want me to hand it to them and when is it fair to give it to them so they have time to read it and uh, put in my grade and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, is that I have about four weeks uh, before that time 10 pages a week, and um, so far I'm on track to do it, Um, you know, so I'm not great at math, but is that like a page and a half a day? I don't know, but uh, in the last couple days I've probably written about seven pages in the last uh, three days or so, and uh, it's okay. Admittedly, I think this is kind of the easy part of the the paper. It may get a little bit harder, but uh, at least some of the pressure is alleviated in that when you have something looming and you're just not looking at it at all, well, that's a difficult position to be in. And uh, that's where I was for the first two months of the semester. (laughs) And uh, I'm glad I finally got around to things. Um, One thing that I I don't know if I have a lot to say about it, but it was certainly on my mind and I'm surprised that we didn't get to it. Uh, Last time I sat down to record one of these um, was that there was this very interesting event that happened on campus. One of the responsibilities I have is, you know, there's a, I don't know what you call it. It's called the Center for Chinese Studies. It's like an enclave uh, on UC Berkeley campus. I don't really know how these things work. It's not a department. I don't really don't know what it is. But the point is, is that uh, uh, I am, uh, for them, I am their ambassador for undergraduate students at UC Berkeley, which sounds great, except really all it amounts to is that I forward emails to undergraduate, to their undergraduate email list. So they'll have some type of event that's coming up. They ask me to forward it uh, to the undergraduate listserv, and that's exactly what I do, and it takes about five minutes. And uh, although they pay me, I don't even know how much they pay me. It could be $10 an hour. Maybe it's 15 I actually have no idea. Um, yeah, it's just I, I, I don't even fill out my timesheet anymore because uh, the amount of money that they pay me is so small. Or I should say, I should put it this way. The amount of time I put in is so small that it barely warrants a paycheck. So, um, However, there have been a couple times where they'll have kind of a major event coming up, or what for them is a major event. And um, not only will they ask me to help promote it, but they need someone to help facilitate the event. And so um, as I'm saying this, I don't know if I've actually, <laughs> maybe I'm repeating myself. Um, 
I admit last time I recorded one of these, there was some start and stop. Um, and when I finally, even when I finally sat down to actually record the damn thing, I know that uh, I almost uh, aborted that entry. And so honestly, I have not listened back to it. So I have no idea if I've actually talked about this or maybe this came up and I aborted it. But the point is, is that uh, the Center for Chinese Studies had this event. Um, it was some writer for, I think, the New York Times or something speaking with some other presumably smart person about the state of affairs between China and the U.S. And uh, I was very surprised as I was facilitating this event that there were uh, a lot of celebrities who showed up. Uh, one of them was Joel Cohen, who I was very surprised to see and uh, was probably a little overly familiar with in that uh, when I saw his name on the guest list, I said, oh, that's like Joel Cohen, the filmmaker. And they were like, uh, that is Joel Cohen, the filmmaker. And I was like, oh, shit. And uh, I think the person I was uh, kind of, or, you know, kind of um, facilitating the event with, who was my superior, kind of saw my enthusiasm and, and made a very uh, gentle note. Uh, hey, let's be a little formal when we interact with him. And I was like, oh, sure, of course, of course. But when he showed up to the counter, I was in charge of like checking in the VIP people. I sort of look up and I see him and I go, uh, 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 Joel. <laughs> and he looks at me like, uh, do we know each other? And I immediately had to revert to my formality and uh, try to get him checked in and, and into his seat. And uh, I admit the entire event, I'm sort of half watching the event and half watching how it's kind of landing with Joel Cohen. Uh, the only other person, and I can't remember who the person was, but it was the son of like one of the richest people in the world. And he was there with his security detail. And it was very bizarre to see this young person who was maybe in their mid-20s, they spent the entire time just looking at their cell phone, presumably looking at Instagram or, I don't know, looking at escorts or something like that. And the security detail was just, it was just this kind of absurd situation of watching this person who was completely checked out, had no interest in being there, maybe was just there as a ambassador for their father or family or something like that. But it was just this bizarre thing with the security. You just felt this kind of silliness about the whole thing which is i guess it makes sense that he has security his family's very wealthy he's probably a target to be captured and held for ransom or something like that but it was just kind of like both security and this young man i don't know there was something kind of tragic about it honestly um yeah just something very absurd about their whole situation um but really this is just preface to the fact that we had another event recently which um i really didn't know how to feel about. As the date was approaching, though, I got more and more excited, which was uh, I knew that we had this uh, Beijing opera star who happens to live in Taiwan, but the style of opera that they perform is Beijing, is the Beijing style of opera, which if, you, uh, if you've seen the movie Farewell My Concubine, you can see what that is. It's a very stylized form of performance. If you look it up on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. It's, a very, it's actually very, very interesting. But... Um, this person, uh, her name is Wei Haimin. She's a huge celebrity in Taiwan, um, uh, very known for her, you know, just a very famous Beijing opera performer um, uh, who was coming and talking about their uh, career and also doing some kind of exemplary performances. Not like a full-blown performance, but as part of their talk was going to be excerpting, you know, maybe a song from something. Actually, I sort of looked it up. They were uh, doing a song from... Uh, one of the reasons I was getting excited is one of the songs that they were going to sing or one of the performances they, they were going to demonstrate was a character they created, which they originated in a production called The Kingdom of Desire, 
which is a Beijing-style opera that was written as an adaptation of Macbeth. And if you know me, you know that I'm a huge fan of Macbeth. So before the event, I looked online to see what is this performance, like the, the Kingdom of Desire. I'd never heard of this. And uh, I'm not only equating the two because they're both Asian productions, but one thing I've always felt, and actually I've, <laughs> I've actually thought about this recently. I probably mentioned that I uh, have kind of been poking around the National Theater's new streaming service, and I still am doing that. And I actually watched about half of Ian McKellen's uh, production of King Lear. And although Ian McKellen is very good, um, it actually just got my mind thinking about this idea that some people will probably want to crucify me for, but it just happens to be true for me, which is there's this ongoing debate about whether Shakespeare is better on the page or better in performance. And, you know, I feel like if you're an apologist for Shakespeare, like if you're a teacher who's in front of a classroom full of people who are hating what they're reading, it's very easy to say, oh, well, Shakespeare really only comes alive on stage. Sometimes that's true. I mean, there's sometimes there's plays that I don't really get or understand or, or whatever, but then you see a performance of it and you go, oh, yeah, it really comes to life. But I also think that a lot of Shakespeare plays pose uh, a lot of mm, technical, thematic challenges, uh, partly because they're dated, right? There's just a lot of conventions of Shakespearean theater that are just boring for modern audiences. Um, for example, when you watch King Lear, the plot like develops like super quickly. And there's also this bizarre moment where I, I, I sort of forget about it, and I don't remember the characters' names, but there's a gentleman, he's sort of speaking with another they're both like government officials of some capacity and there's like this person young man standing off in the distance and the other one asks him basically oh isn't that your son and he goes on this whole monologue about oh yes he's my bastard son and unfortunately i didn't want to have anything to do with his mother but she was going to keep the baby and basically he's just a bastard and i don't really love him but i tolerate him and make the most of him and it just it just feels very very weird and actors are just put in a, a difficult position on one, how does the person who's playing the child like deal realistically with this scene? Um, and also, how does the actor who's giving this monologue deliver it credibly? Now, I don't want to get in the weeds about um, King Lear, but even my favorite play, Macbeth, is often not very good when you watch it. It's very good on the page because it's everything can sort of exist in your mind very easily. But to put this actually up on a stage and make a credible performance that is not just good in parts, but is actually has this like creative unity, which feels like a, very, a fully realized world is very, very difficult. For example, and I hadn't even thought about this. Wow, isn't it funny how this works? Not Joel Cohen, I think it was the other Cohen, directed a, a, a film version of, or maybe it was Joel Cohen. Anyway, the, wow, I don't know. The point is, is that one of the Coen brothers did a film version of Macbeth recently with Francis McDormand, with Denzel Washington. And although parts of it are good, for example, the witches are famously difficult to deal with. In fact, there's actually a scene with Hecate, who's like the queen of the witches, which people don't think Shakespeare even wrote, which they often just delete because it's so challenging to deal with. Um... But dealing with the witches is very difficult because, on the one hand, you're dealing with a play whose themes are timeless. The usurpation, if that's a word, of power, uh, ambition. Um, but you have to make a choice somewhere along when you do Macbeth. You have to sort of determine, and I, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing we're way off from talking about Beijing opera, but that's okay. Um, but when you do Macbeth, you have to make a choice on how you deal with the element of the supernatural. Um, because if the witches weren't present, 
it would be very easy to just kind of do a rendition of Macbeth where it's about ambition and it's about power and it's very graftable, which is what most people do with Shakespeare is they take it out of its the context that's written on the page and try to put it into some new context, whether it's, um, you know, uh, they want to put it on Wall Street or I actually heard about a, a film version, I think, that places it in McDonald's that does Macbeth inside McDonald's or some kind of fast food restaurant or something like that. Um, who's the Scottish actor who did a pretty good version of Macbeth recently? I can't remember his name. Uh, he's the dude from Split. Uh, as soon as I think of his name, I'll feel stupid. Um, but uh, as I'm thinking about good versions of Macbeth, uh, the reason I was sort of bringing up Kingdom of Desire in relationship to another Asian rendition is uh, Throne of Blood. Um, so yeah, I guess what I'm saying is some of the best renditions of Macbeth have been those that uh, actually you know, just adapt the story and aren't married to the text because the text poses some major problems. So if you delete the supernatural element, it becomes just kind of a, a human story. But how do you deal with the supernatural in Macbeth? Because if it weren't, but for the witches, Macbeth may not have ever thought about wanting to be king. But when the witches sort of stop him and announce, hey, you're going to be king, he says, oh, shit, well, now I got to think about it. And so he writes to his wife. And then dealing with Lady Macbeth is also strange as well, because, his, you know, as a sort of cliche or an archetype, Lady Macbeth or Lady Macbeth type characters are always the quietly ambitious females who, but for their meddling or for their own ambitions, they're, the men in their lives would not have risen to power or something. The kind of in, in some ways, you can read it as kind of a misogyny of like the the poisoning influence of women, or as some people try to deal with it as like really make her the balls and the power uh, of the relationship, you know, and have some kind of meta commentary on, you know, the inability of women to assert themselves, but through uh, they have to use more uh, sort of uh, complex, calculated means to assert their authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a way that people try to deal with the supernatural sometimes is. They try to make the witches just an extension of Macbeth's own internal ambition. But the thing that makes that impossible to do is that when the witches first appear, Banquo is also present, and the witches speak to him. Um, so, again, there's this thing, and it's why most Shakespeare productions don't succeed, is because they have some sort of modern perspective on the play that they'd like to do that maybe. 75, 80, maybe 90% of the play makes sense with, but there are just these blatantly absurd moments that whatever newfangled modern production they're trying to do just don't make sense with. And there's, so it's just, it's, so it's just, there's just a lot of creative dissonance sometimes in these productions. So anyway, maybe I just like the sound of my own voice, but uh, that's really just a circuitous way to get back to this idea that some of the most successful productions of Shakespeare have been the ones that just adapt the story itself, but don't rely on the text, and therefore they can take whatever licenses they want. And one of the good examples of, is uh, Japanese director Kurosawa's film, Throne of Blood. And in preparation for this Beijing opera performance that was coming to UC Berkeley campus, and this woman who had played, I think the character's name, they, they retitled the character like Aoshu or something like that. But Lady Aoshu is in The Kingdom of Desire, which is a Beijing opera adaptation of Macbeth. I watched it online, and it's exceptional. Uh, it's short. It's about two hours, which uh, is good. 
uh, it does a lot of the extemporaneous story of like Duncan's son, which actually mars, I think, the Cohen, the Cohen movie, which I was talking about the problems with. Maybe I didn't say this, but I was going to say that the, Col- the Cohen movie has the best representation of the witches, or maybe one of them, that I've ever seen. Um, in a film of its type, in a not staged, in a not staged film production, it probably has the best representation of the witches. As I'm thinking about it, speaking of Ian McKellen, the best version of Macbeth I've ever seen is the semi-staged production with Ian McKellen and Dame Judi Dench, maybe from the 70s or 80s or something like that, but it's filmed in a black box theater type environment, and it is nearly perfect. They do some editing with the text, but Overall, I think it's it 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 handles all of the weird elements of Macbeth the best that I've ever seen. It's very very good. So if you can find that, it's probably on YouTube somewhere. I highly recommend it. But anyway, the point I'm getting to is having seen this production of Kingdom and Desire that's available online. You can Google it. Um, I think it's it's you'll find that on a website. I think it's called Global Shakespeare that highlights this kind of cross-cultural collaboration where people from different cultures either do their own production or um, adaptation of all these Macbeth plays and uh, uh, Kingdom of Desire is one of them. But anyway, so this opera star, uh, Wei Haimin, comes to UC Berkeley and I'm sort of facilitating this event. And even as I'm telling this now, I don't really know where I was going into, (laughs) um, except to say it was actually very cool um, to have this person show up. Um, I mentioned that they do kind of Beijing-style opera, but they actually live in, they're actually Taiwanese, and they made their name in Taiwan, and they uh, a, a sort of, you know, spearheaded a very famous theater company in Taiwan, which I think has closed probably both since the pandemic and also because I think this star, Wei Haimin, I think, went into retirement um, around the time of COVID. Um, but yeah, they came to the campus, I was sort of doing my thing, getting people sat and all that sort of stuff and getting the event set up. No celebrities this time, at least not any celebrities that I recognize except for <laughs> your boy. And, uh, but it was a great event. And um, yeah, just very interesting to, it's one of these things when the person actually showed up because although I had seen them with, you know, when you see Beijing opera, it's very stylized. There's a lot of makeup. Although I had seen this person or many clips of this person performing, I have no idea of what they look like without makeup. So when she actually arrived, I didn't know who she was. I thought maybe she was just a person there for the event. And so I was. it was just one of these moments where I was, uh, not just in that moment, but thinking back to my time in Taiwan, which is when you're on public transportation, which is what everybody takes. Um, like, for example, I saw this photo of like Paul McCartney just like taking uh, the train. And it was just this idea, like, in you know, we talk about how great public transportation is and United States, it's not great. And, you know, I doubt very highly that, you know, a lot of rich or rich people or celebrities take public transportation, at least here in the Bay Area. But when you live in metro, metro, metropolises like New York City or maybe other parts of the world, celebrities take public transportation all the time. And Taiwan strikes me as one of those places where uh, people, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody's taking uh, the MRT, the train. And uh, so it was just this, I had this image or I was just sort of marinating on this thought like, oh, if Wei Haimin just like hopped on the train, maybe other people would recognize her. But you would just be sitting alongside this person and you have no idea the rich history that they have or how accomplished that they are. And uh, yeah, just something interesting. And um, yeah, really happy to have done the event. 
And I think one thing that I was actually got my mind going on this thing was talking about my thesis, which is after the event, I happened to run into one of the things that I do at these events is I'm usually the person who has the microphone afterwards, who's like doing the, during the Q&A session, I like look to see who has their hand up and I someone raises their hand and I like run over and like hand in the mic. And one of the, uh, as I was sort of doing this, one of the people that raised their hand, I recognize as a student, a fellow student that I've had in a couple classes of mine. One was a comparative literature class. Another was this um, semester-long class on this classic Chinese novel called Hong Lo Meng, or Dream of the Red Chamber, or another translation is The Story of the Stone. But it's basically a very long novel, and so you spend the entire semester just reading one text. Um but uh, they're very bright. I hadn't seen them for a while. And uh, so they just happened to be one of the people that raised their hand. So I sort of run over with the mic. They ask their question. And afterwards, uh, after the event, we say, oh, hey, it was nice to see you in the audience. Start chatting. And uh, they were also someone who uh, they graduated last semester, I think. But they had also done an honors thesis. And so they were kind of asking me how mine was going. And I said, well, I admit I'd sort of putting it off for a long time, but I finally got around to it. So I'm chipping away at it. And they said, well, don't do what I did, which is I, I sort of wrote it in the last two weeks. And I sort of laughed and said, well, it may not be two. I mean, double that. It may be about four or five weeks for me, but I'm definitely starting on it later than I should. But it just, yeah, it just sort of got me thinking because I've encountered that at my last job, too. I had a coworker who uh, was in graduate school. And I remember we were just kind of talking to each other about how we go about and do things. And... She also said that they are one of these people who, if they have like a 25-page paper to write, which happens very frequently in grad school, that they often won't start writing it until like the day before or the night before. And it just boggles my mind because I just don't conceivably see how you could write a 25-page paper in one sitting. I mean, of course, you could just kind of, I mean, on the one hand, some people would say, how can one person talk for an hour without any notes? Well, you could certainly do it. The quality may suffer. And uh, hell, this personal, this personal journal could be perfect evidence of that. But uh, so maybe it can be done. Or what's the Chris Rock joke? He's like, you could, you could drive a car with your feet if you want to, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's just not clear to me how you could produce anything of substance. And, uh, yeah, but I guess it also makes me feel bad because it also makes me wonder, uh, about my own process of doing things, which is I sort of crucify myself and think I need to kind of, you know, get it together or I'm falling behind or I'm not doing good enough. But then when I actually look at what some other people are doing, not everybody, because some people are actually doing what I wish I was able to do, which is they get the assignment, they immediately start chipping away at it, they make a schedule for themselves and it's like anything else. That seems like the way to do it, right? Not put it off. I'm kind of like right in the middle, which is I may not put it off the last minute, but I do seem to have, and maybe we're all calibrated this way, but I have a kind of an oven timer, which is like, I kind of let it run. I kind of let it run. And it always feels like a miracle to me because it's not like I'm necessarily frantic at the last minute, but it's like I wait longer than I should to get started. And once I do, it really requires a concerted kind of focused effort to get it done. And it's always done, you know. I've never not completed an assignment, at least in my adult life. But uh, at least for me, it feels like it's just so obviously the case for me that papers are not 
really, at least good papers, are not really written just in the writing of them. It's actually in the revision of them. Because so many times, and I'm doing it right now with my thesis, is you sort of sit down to write something. And even if you think you know what your point is, or what your beliefs are, or what you're writing about, or even what your thesis is, it's just so often the case that as you're writing it, you just, your, your mind changes, right? Or sometimes you're writing it and you just realize there's just so many dissonances between, you know, the first part of the paper and the last part of the paper. And it just takes multiple passes of reading something and thinking about it and reading it out loud to kind of iron out, you know, all these, I don't know, these bumps, these, uh, you know, blemishes, right? These sort of problems with the paper. And it's like, yeah, maybe it's maybe maybe the problem is, is I don't see these people that these people's work and I don't see what grades they get. But I guess I assume on some level they do well enough for themselves. They're certainly getting by. Um, it just goes back to this idea sometimes where I think I hold myself to too too high a standard, and I make myself feel bad for doing what I'm doing as if it's not good enough. When maybe it's actually true that it's, you know, not only is it good enough, it's probably like maybe maybe better than maybe what most people are kind of calibrated to do. And um, I don't say that to be self-graduatory. Uh, I really mean it to say, you know, that sometimes I just worry that I'm way too hard on myself. So again, I don't know what actually um, got recorded for posterity. But one thing I've been thinking about, and uh, I know came up at least in maybe one of my aborted attempts to record this last time, was that, uh, you know, I've been in therapy for 14 years. I actually don't know what the number is, but that sounds about right. And, uh, you know, for a few years of that, I was going twice a week. So, uh, you know, it's been one of my primary focuses for, I don't know, most of my adult life. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of progress, but it's, you know, when in my sort of self-deprecating moments or when I'm trying to be humorous about the whole experience, I'll say, you know, well, basically I've been talking about the same thing for like 14 years. And that's kind of true. Um, but there's something about recently as well, uh, and it could be just because I'm, you know, getting ready to graduate. Maybe I'm in a transitional period of my life generally. But I feel like especially over the last couple of weeks, although a lot of my, you know, sort of greatest hits kind of topics are coming up, um, they feel a little bit different for me. And one of them was just kind of assessing this semester, you know, I... I'm ending my time at Berkeley. I quit my job so that I would have more time to focus on my studies. And yet when I check in with myself, I see how I'm actually feeling. I feel just as stressed out, if not more stressed out this semester than I do every other semester. And I just think, well, why is that? I shouldn't be. I mean, of course, I, you know... Um, I was going to say, of course, I have this looming thesis that I'm not looking at, which has made things, which which I admit was putting a lot of pressure on me for the first two months of the semester. But at the end of the day, I have plenty of time. I'm doing a fair amount of chilling. And it just highlights for me that, you know, there's something about my uh, wiring. There's something about my calibration, which is I am calibrated or acclimated or habituated to putting a certain amount of uh, pressure on myself, uh, a certain amount of, which, which sums to a certain amount of unhappiness, a certain amount of uncomfortability, 
a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, self-loathing or something. There's some kind of base state that I'm calibrated to that even when I do proactive things in my life, trying to alleviate some of that, like, hey, allowing myself to step away from my work and uh, giving myself more time for my studies, I do this kind of correction in my behavior that ensures that I'm going to feel the exact same amount. It could be in my lifestyle, uh, although I can't really think of what that might be. Although I will say in the last week, I haven't been as physically active as I should be, which always makes me feel a little bit more sad. And then once I start feeling like, oh, hey, I'm kind of feeling down in the dumps, I always realize, hey, it's because you're not being physically active. So that's one thing I need to do. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, there, I think there's probably a way me not looking at my thesis, although I didn't experience it this way, me delaying it, which is not really something I do generally, is a kind of uh, subconscious way of me uh, evoking the type of stress that, for whatever reason, I feel like I need in my life to feel normal. You know? Some people have this wiring... You know, I guess the armchair psychologist or the sort of popular science reduction of all this sort of stuff is like, if you're a kid who grows up, you know, I'm thinking female, it could be anybody, but if you're growing up in a home where you're abused, then you date an abuser. And every time you end one of those relationships, you announce to the cosmos, I'll never date anyone who abuses me again. And of course, the next person you meet, they seem like the best person in the world, but within one year, they start hitting you. And so you feel like there's this magical way you have some type of radar, some sort of sensor that seeks this stuff out to kind of recreate the same traumas over and over and over again. And the way that we kind of talk about therapy in public and the way I was kind of calibrated to it when I first arrived is I thought what perpetuated those cycles was just a lack of insight, right? I think that exists for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people who don't have insight necessarily into their situation sometimes. So we imagine we're going to go to therapy and it's like going to a a personal trainer or somebody and they're going to tell us, hey, you do this because you, the reason you keep dating an abuser is because you were abused. And somehow this light bulb is going to go off and this insight that the person has is like the empowers them or gives them the tool that they need to do something different. Because we think we're all wired this way, we're like, we just do what's best for us, you know, or we do the best that we can. But once we kind of know that, you know, either we're contributing to our own problem or the reason that we're doing this, you know, seemingly self-destructive behavior is because of some adverse experience in our past, you know, we think that we're just going to magically correct for it. But the thing that gets overlooked is that the reason we do that is it has a sort of a adaptive purpose you know and it's different for everybody i can't go into too much specifics about what, what it means for different people but the thing that the, the hardest thing for me to sort of reconcile for myself and i'm talking about my own you know the ways in which i'm hard on myself the ways that i make things difficult for myself even when they don't have to be even as i'm trying to make my life easier i ensure that i find some other way to make it difficult um It's all in the service of keeping this base state of stress, of self-loathing, or whatever you want to call it, because it's what I prefer. Now, even as I say that, it feels weird. There's like, I I get very defensive. I want to find a different word for it. But it's the word I'm really trying to think about in a non-judgmental kind of way. 
you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to think about it in like this kind of like pleasure in pain type thing, but it's, it has something to do with me preferring it partly because it's our normal, right? So for somebody who was like raised in an environment where their dad hit them, you know, there's just a way in which our model for what love means is it is attached to the types of people who uh, like also hit people. So, you know, it's really this calculus of like, you know, you're trying to find the person who doesn't hit you, but so much of what informs your attraction to people generally is sort of bound up in the types of character traits that people who hit people happen to have. So it, it just makes sense that you're kind of attracted to those people. But it's also this thing of like when you encounter somebody who doesn't have that constellation of character traits, although they might be better for you, it's not just that, you know, like when I was listening to a lot of Loveline growing up, it was always sort of framed kind of very judgmentally as like people who um, have experienced trauma, they, they would sort of frame this conversation about them rejecting potentially good partners as if it was just a, a deficiency on that person's part. They would say, oh, that person can't tolerate it, so they sabotage the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, which might be true, ostensibly. But it's not just like that person needs to get to a place where they tolerate that relationship and they'll be cured, you know? Again, that's sort of reverting to that kind of idea of therapy as like personal training or something like that. Where we look as like mental health is sort of like that size zero dress or, you know, uh, uh, 30 inch or 32 inch waist jeans that we're all trying to fit into. And but for our caloric intake, but for the foods that we choose to eat, and mental health-wise, that could be what? But for our traumas, but for our substance abuses, but for, you know, whatever delusional outlook we have on life in general, whether it's uh, Flat Earth or uh, QAnon or something like that, but for these things, we would be able to kind of fit into that normative cookie-cutter image of mental health that we're all sort of aspiring to. Um. So again, you know, the person who's kind of rejecting those relationships, it is true that on some sense they can't tolerate and they're self-sabotaging. But another thing is, is that they don't have, they don't even have a taste for it. You know? It just doesn't even register as love for them. Like the word boredom comes to mind. But it's even more than that. Like, for example, I don't know how to weave this in exactly, but it's always stuck with me. And maybe I'll have some kind of epiphany in therapy where this all makes sense, but, or maybe even in this conversation. But... I remember watching The Biggest Loser. Do you remember that show? I don't I don't I don't think it's still on. It can't be still on. I, I can't believe in our current environment that the show would still be on TV. But it was basically profoundly morbidly obese people going to a kind of fat camp where they were basically put on a treadmill and their diet was monitored. And it was basically who could lose the most amount of weight. And I remember someone talking about this show, and the thing that is, is very hard to watch is you have all of these adults who are kind of, you know, on the one hand, they're saying, I want X, Y, Z, I want to lose weight, but you really have to see them contend with all of the ways in which what they are habituated to is entirely antithetical to losing weight. And so the image that gets conveyed is when you see someone who is announcing that they want to be thin, but they can't bring themselves to work out. Or they're announcing they want to be thin and they're told, okay, well, you have to eat X, Y, and Z. And meanwhile, they're stashing candy or cheating on their diets or all sorts of stuff. And we just look at them as like weak people or that they don't have the constitution um, uh, to do it. But the thing that these shows don't address, I mean, even people who lose the weight, 
when they look at these things long term, inevitably these people gain the weight back, uh, or many of these people gain the weight back. Because the thing that goes unaddressed is that being that weight, although it's making them miserable, is accomplishing something else very profound for them. Even if it's making them miserable, it's accomplishing something very profound for them. It could be keeping certain types of people at bay. You know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of things that it could be doing, but it's doing something for them. There's something adaptive about it, even if it's ultimately bad for them. In one, maybe in one or maybe in a couple points of their life, it's actually doing something um, that feels like survival for them. And so uh, the real point I wanted to bring up is this idea of like diet and food, which is someone, and I forget, maybe it was a doctor on the show or something like that, but they were talking about, there was this, there was this scene where they were having uh, these people eat salad. And one of the people said that they had never had salad before, which for most people sounds wild, right? Like how could somebody have reach adult age and never have salad? And, you know, for most of us who eat salad on a semi-regular basis, you know, we like a lot of dressing because, you know, we're, and I can't stand people who like eat kale and act like it's the tastiest thing in the world. It's not. It, it, it doesn't taste very good, at least to me. But it's not really bad as much as it is just, you know, not the greatest, right? But when I was watching this person eat salad, their face was literally contorted, you know? And I just thought that that image just really stuck with me because I was like, what is it that this person's tasting that is causing them to have this look on their face? And I don't, I feel like I'm paraphrasing something that one of the doctors or the, or the dietitian said or something like that. But the thing I took away from it was like, this person literally doesn't have a taste for this food. And do you know what I mean by that? It wasn't just like they didn't like it. There was something about the way that their brain was hardwired to experience like, what is food? What counts as food? Excluded salad, you know? Because it just wasn't a part of their diet. It hadn't been, uh, you know, they hadn't been habituated to literally palate salad before. So you stick lettuce in the mouth of somebody who's never had it before. And of course, their brain is like, it just contorts their brow furrows. You know, the mind doesn't know what to make of this. It just feels so foreign because for them, it's not food. You know, it just doesn't register as food for them. And I think the, this is, I don't know, maybe this is, uh, maybe you, you're probably well aware of the point I'm trying to make here. But it's something like that, which is we all have our calibrations where we see the relief of the world in a certain way that's entirely predicated on like our own experiences and what we're habituated to. And even the things that somebody can be evangelical and adamant are good for us or, or help us gain the thing that we want. You know, you could just imagine it's just like something going into your mouth that someone is telling you is food and it just doesn't taste like any food you've ever had before. So you try to chew on it but your tongue is kind of trying to avoid it as well because it feels weird and it's just the texture and it's just it just doesn't register as food. And there's a way that happens with relationships, you know? So for example, I think one thing that I've noticed in my life in terms of like who appears to be romantically available is when I was much younger, everybody I was interested in romantically, whether I realized it at the time or not, just turned out to be unavailable. And it could be literally they had a partner or they were just emotionally unavailable, which is even if they were single, even if they liked me, they were just never going to be down for a relationship with me because of wherever they were at in their life. And it was like I had this magical divining rod of, of, of dialing into those things. 
And so this this is where you get like the the talk that you hear like oh there's no good men out there or there's no good women out there because you know your divining rod is kind of keeps dialing into this one frequency that these types of people happen to live on. But as you kind of go through therapy, as you sort of recalibrate yourself, you see that literally the relief of your life changes. People that were formerly all that you could see that it, they seemed like the only people that existed in the world kind of recede into the background. And all these people who were there all the time that you just never saw start to move forward. And it's literally like dining into, uh, dialing into a different frequency, right? I feel like this is another one of my greatest hits points, but the point I, I or one of the ways I always sort of think about this is in the movie Labyrinth, where Jennifer Connelly sort of enters a labyrinth and she's running down it and it just looks completely straight to her. And she gets frustrated and she says, oh, it's not fair. All I want is a turn or a door or something, but I can't find it anywhere. It's just this straight thing. And so she falls in exasperation and there's that little worm who just goes, hello. You know, it's a great scene. It's, it's actually one of the, it's, it's actually, it's so bizarre because actually it's the first example of like, I think, what movie was it? Oh, Quentin Tarantino, although he didn't direct it, he wrote True Romance. And if you watch the director's or the writer's commentary, I guess, for that film, um, Quentin Tarantino talks about that scene uh, the Sicilian, how do I say this without, uh, there's a racial slur here, but this is, I'll say the Sicilian scene. If you've seen the movie True Romance, there's this phenomenal scene with, um, I always say Anthony Hopkins, uh, Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. And there's just this great monologue, if you can tolerate the sort of racial slur that exists in it, uh, where, uh, Dennis Hopper talks about, you know, where Sicilians came from. And Quentin Tarantino makes this comment about that scene, uh, and it's a great point. It's always stuck with me. He says it's actually insane. It, it's it, this, this scene is so good that it's actually amazing that the, the movie almost can't survive it, right? So you see this scene, and it's so good. It's like, how could anything after this scene be that good? And uh, I happen to think Labyrinth is a great film, but there's something so iconic about this early scene that it is a wonder that the movie kind of survives it. But there's this great endearing character who sort of pops up, and he says uh, this little worm with an English accent, and he insists that right across from her, there's a turn. And she looks, and it's just a flat wall. And she says, it's, it's not a turn, it's just a flat wall. And he says, well, of course it's a turn. You're just not seeing it right. And so she has this very cool moment. It's a very cool, practical effect in the film. And even when I watch it now, I still can't quite see it until she actually turns the corner. I can't see the seam in what they've built. But she just sort of puts her hands up and starts walking forward. And you think, she, as soon as you think she's about to touch the wall, she just happens to keep going. And she looks left and looks right and says, oh, wow, it is a turn. And it's only when she like starts walking left that you see her kind of disappear behind a wall that even as an audience member, you didn't see is there. Now, I happen to think that Labyrinth is one of these children's movies that is actually very deep. And I think the reason it sticks around in the minds of those of us who were lucky enough to have lived at the time where it was released or was a formative film for our childhood, the reason it stands out above other films like Who the Fuck Remembers Fern Gully, The Last of the Rainforest, <laughs> nobody, the reason we remember Labyrinth, one, because of its heavily heavy investment in practical effects. Maybe I was talking about this with Dracula recently, I don't know. But I happen to think that movies that are heavily invested in practical effects, which by the way, I have to watch the movie The Thing again soon. I was thinking about that movie as well recently. But movies that are invested in practical effects have a deeper psychological effect on us. Because we, even if we 
even if they're not as convincing as illusions, they they impart to us by the nature of their being the uh, sort of investment of human on ingenuity and film craft that went into this moment. And so they, they're just more impressive. Even if we're less convinced by them, they're just more impressive. Like I saw that, I watched the the, the Flash movie like uh, when like maybe like a month or two ago. I can't remember. It was on like one of the streaming services. And although there was actually, I think a lot of these movies are actually, I find them to be a lot more intelligent than they have been historically. Um it's just all CGI. And although it's kind of vis- visually beautiful in a way, there's just it just it just wicks off you. It's just too much. It just doesn't last. And I know that makes me sound like a crouchy old person, but it, it just happens to be true. I just think that there's there's something uh, more impactful about uh, uh, practical effects. I just think we all respond to them very differently on a psychological level than we do the CGI. Um, but the point of all that was, yeah, one of the reasons that Labyrinth lasts is because um, of its investment in practical effects. It's also just like a very good story. But because of its allegory, right, because it has these kind of important, almost like Alice in Wonderland or something like that. It's a children's story, but it's really trying to say something profound about the human condition and uh, and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's that's why it sort of sticks. And why am I talking about all this? Why did I go about this? I'm talking about therapy somehow. The relief of your life changing, something like that. Um, but yeah, maybe you knew that. You know, sometimes I, I sort of hear myself talking impassioned. Uh, I see myself getting impassioned about these things that, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe for me, they feel like things that are very important. Um, but uh, maybe it's just a, a chorus of people just kind of sitting there with their arms folded and they're going, uh, duh. Uh, duh, dude. You're talking about this like this is some pearl of wisdom this is just the bare minimum man this is just of course this is what we all know but actually even as i'm saying that just trying to bring it back to myself here (laughs) um uh one of the ways yeah being hard on myself i i do think there are times where um yeah, I sort of deprecate the things that I find interesting or the things that I'm sort of absorbed with because I also, you know, part of my straight hallway, if we're using Labyrinth as the example, the part where I can't see any doors or turns in whatever uh, Labyrinth I'm sort of walking is, um, yeah, kind of deprecating what I find interesting, deprecating what I, you know, because I'm, for me, my whole conception of myself is like I'm, I'm, I'm working my way back up to zero, you know, I'm always deficient, you know, even when I do, even when I do well, that to me, that is, I always frame it as the bare minimum. And even if at one point in my life, I thought of, you know, an accomplishment as success, once I get it, I immediately reconceptualize my understanding to now make that below the bare minimum. Meaning, I'm trying to think of an example. So, um, due to my GPA, I received an invitation to join Phi Beta Kappa, which I can't really say anything intelligent about, except, you know, for people who have a certain GPA at universities, I think you, I don't know what it is. You, you look it up, but you have to have very good grades and you get an invitation to join Phi Beta Kappa. Now for that, that's prestigious for some people. Um, for, and for, and for, I think for healthy people, they would look at that as an, as a validation or an affirmation of their hard work. Wow. Look at all my hard work has paid off that I, 
got into this organization. For me, when I get that invitation, I immediately, to the dis- to the disservice of this um, ostensibly prestigious institution, I assume that that says that says something bad about them. You know, I literally think, oh well, if I can get into Phi Beta Kappa, it must mean that it's not that prestigious. Because my, you know, it doesn't matter what my grades look like on paper. It doesn't matter what I accomplish to other people. By virtue of the fact that my entire self-talk is like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I, I could be doing more. I'm not doing enough. When I do get those things, it's because, I, you know, my experience leading up to that point is just deficiency. That the fact that I still got the award or I, I you know, I still get the accomplishment says more about the intrinsic worthlessness of the award. You know, it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz, right? Like, I finally get to the Emerald City, but I peel back the curtain and I see the wizard is just this dude behind a curtain, you know? And that's how I treat, you know, anything I, quote, accomplish generally. I think, oh, the world is just living in this state of delusion where we think things like, uh, not that I've won an Academy Award, but, uh, you know, we think all these, uh, you know, Academy Awards or Grammys or... um you know, whatever, a 4.0 GPA, or hell, just practical things like going to X college. Um, wow, we think those like a certain uh, caliber or quality or whatever uh, strata of people accomplish that. And anytime I find myself in those situations, I feel like, you know, rather than feeling like, oh, hey, great, wow, this really says something good about me, I discredit the institution. You know, by virtue of them having someone like me, I actually know that whatever the whatever the public perceives them to be is actually not true. Now, I think some of that definitely exists in society, right? There are a lot of institutions and things that are heavily invested in being perceived as one thing when in actual fact they're pretty baseless. But you know, the the point of all this is not to necessarily pick those things apart. It's just to to know, which I think was leading up here, is that that that's just my constitution generally. That's just the way I'm calibrated. And you know, again, just coming back to my life now, even though I am attempting to take remove stressors from my life, there's something about my calibration and my situation which is I. It's like my mind goes into overtime, uh, whether it's negative self talk or whatever it is. Uh, not you know postponing my thesis is because I'm trying to guarantee I'm trying to ensure not consciously, but there's some operating system in my brain that is working overtime that's heavily invested in making me feel a certain amount of badness about myself or my situation or something like that. And what I'm talking about is not it's not self sabotage. I mean it's a it's a type of self sabotage, right? I mean in that. My life would be easier without it. But I'm equating it. It's not just like, I mean, there are people who are truly self-saboteurs, you know? Um, the types of people who like, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned really, I really enjoy police interrogation videos. But it's this thing about like when you watch like cops or when you watch, uh, there's a lot of this stuff on YouTube as well, is you watch these insane police encounters that people have. And look, there's something about, uh you know, uh, trauma and people have sort of eccentric responses to traumatic situations, which appear like craziness to other people, but you know, there could be some legitimate psychological basis in it. But there are also people who just self-sabotage. They find themselves in difficult straits and circumstances. And even as I'm saying this, maybe on some higher psychological level, there's justification for all this stuff. Um, but I'm not that person. 
I'm not a, I'm not a genuine self-saboteur, but what I definitely do do is it's like I feel like I whether it, whether it's my life or whatever, I have to drive with the e-brake on. You know, it's like when I leave my house, I always go like phone, wallet, keys, and I touch those parts of myself. But it's like if my life, there's a there's also a subtext going on in my brain, which is like just in the car of life, dig in the car of life. It's like I go, okay, uh, uh, mirrors, seat. All right, ready to go. And I pull the e-brake before I do anything else. You know, because it's not enough to coast. Right. If I were to just coast, it would feel on it, again back to that analogy of like not being acclimated to uh, salad or something. The face just has a confused look on it. If I was, it's like if I was, you know, my truck that I drive right now is from two thousand. It's not a, it's not a, it's not, it's not a smooth ride, but it's my normal. You know. When I was touring around a little bit, or in my last relationship when we would travel, like I rented more cars in that period of my life than I had at any other time. And every time I got into those cars, it felt fucking weird. You know, the brakes were too good. The accelerator was too good. The ride was too smooth. You know, and you acclimate very quickly. But it just felt bizarre. The, the wheel turned too easily. You know? And uh, that it's just very disorienting. And so, yeah. I'm, anyway, these are all. I mean, I'm saying the same thing about a thousand times in in different scenarios. But yeah, there's something about yeah when things don't go well. Yeah, I think the word I'm I'm feeling my mind come back to is preference, which is a word I hate, but it's something that's coming up in my therapy. Which is like, why do I prefer that? Yeah, you know, it's funny too. Even as I'm saying it, I feel my mind shut down, right? Um, I was talking in this last recording. You know, that was a challenging thing for me to record and I even felt my mind kind of shutting down in a way that it hadn't before. And I've talked about this in therapy too. I remember my, uh, it, it, it comes up frequently. It wasn't just a one and done or it, it wasn't just limited to one chapter of my therapy as well. But, you know, there's just, you know, it's like my mind is always kind of knocking on the door of some new insight. And it's like once there's something something about this operating system that keeps me uh, calibrated to a certain type of discomfort or negative self-talk or something. It's like it has these, excuse me, sentries at the door. And every time I kind of knock on the door of the insight that will kind of dismantle this thing, maybe back to the Wizard of Oz, it's the, it's literally the voice going, don't peek behind the curtain, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, don't, don't look, don't look what's going on behind there, um, literally my mind starts to shut down, there's, it's like baked into that self-talk or that self-thought process is a, is a kind of a self-destructive system, you know, it, it, it sort of ensures that you, the thought can't quite complete itself, you know, because it began, again, the self-preservation instinct is to like stay invested in this thing, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Taste. <laughs> I'm laughing because I th- I'm thinking about the you know the, the show The Biggest Loser and I. 
I don't know, maybe Dr. Phil would have some sort of uh, uh, platitude where he says, if you, commit, if you stay committed to that way of self-thinking, you really are the biggest loser. You know who turns out to be the biggest loser? Even if you win, you're still the biggest loser. Yeah, maybe there's something to that. Well, <clears throat> I don't know. What else do we say? School, therapy, movies, theater. We've kind of hit all the uh, hit all the benchmarks. Maybe the only thing I'm thinking about now is I started watching, I think it's called Straight Line Crazy, which is a play with Ralph Fiennes, and it's about Robert Moses. I'm only like 30 minutes into it. I don't, I, part of why I'm, you know, I guess one thing I'm thinking about now as I sort of watch some of these plays is there's, you know, when I was younger, I thought live theater, stage theater was like the pure form of the art form of acting. And there might be something true to that in that I was kind of wedded to this idea of like, well, it happens on stage. It's in front of an audience. There's kind of no safety net. Um, but I think as I've gotten older, or I would qualify this. As I get older, I think camera acting might be actually that that's that's where the best acting is possible because but but because it is free in a way that stage acting is not. So the point is is as I'm watching these plays, one of the things I'm perpetually annoyed by is how affected the acting is. But as like for example, I talked about these this sort of three part or whatever th these three separate plays but are organized around the same conception called Death of England. And one of the things that was so annoying, especially about the first two installments, which are these one-man plays that are kind of creatively staged, but both actors, they're, they're basically an hour-and-a-half-long monologue, um, are, are delivered with such manic energy, right? And as I'm watching this play, Straight Line Crazy, about Robert Moses, there's something so blatantly artificial about the dialogue the actors are literally like stepping on each other's lines which to me is like they're not really listening to each other they're just waiting for their turn to speak um and they've rehearsed this so many times that they're just kind of you know it's like a like a muscle memory kind of coming into uh, coming into play but the thing i'm also aware of too is in live theater you have to project you know you have to, there's just things that the art form in that venue demands, which is you speak with a certain amount of volume. Even in a moment where you're trying to be emotive and sort of sad, the people in the back of the audience have to hear you, right? And I think modern theater has, one thing I've noticed actually with these productions is the ways in which modern theater is trying to be more like film in that a lot of these productions have scores, they have original music, and they're trying to kind of pace themselves and stage themselves more cinematically, if that makes sense. Um, but there's something about being on live stage, which just requires a certain amount of artifice. But there's also something too, which is I'm thinking as these people are kind of going back and forth and kind of talking over each other, or as I'm seeing this kind of manic delivery in these sort of one man plays is that there could be something about live theater or stage theater, which requires a certain amount of momentum that the actor needs to kind of provide for themselves to kind of keep the audience's attention. Because it's not like film, where you're very tight, there's a lot of visual detail for people to sort of attune to, and also there's a lot more visual interest, right? With filmmaking, you can kind of cut back and forth, and you can show people different things, whereas when you're actually, in, I mean, in a way, the filmed version of the play is kind of has an advantage, because at least it can cut between cameras, or zoom in and out and have some type of movement. But at the end of the day, when you're in a theater, 
it's just a static shot from your POV and you're just kind of looking at the stage. And the only variation, I suppose, is like where your eyes attend to. And maybe that's what, maybe that's where blocking and staging comes in. But anyway, I don't have profound things to say about this, except it's just funny for me as someone who, as a kid who wanted to be an actor, thought stage theater was where it was at. I'm kind of watching these plays and I kind of find myself laughing to myself a lot and saying, man, theater sucks or acting sucks. And I'm partly saying that kind of tongue in cheek and and kind of whatever, but it's also kind of true. Like it's just a lot of stage theater is a lot of affect and I don't know. There's to, to me, it's just surprising to me that even at the highest level, the national theater, even with the best actors in the world on stage, I very rarely have a moment where I feel swept up in an actor's performance because even at its best, it still has this, you know, this is this amount of artifice, which is like for me completely absent from something like, you know, Daniel Day Lewis and Phantom Thread or something like that where you have a tight shot on an actor's face and there's not a single moment where you don't believe that Daniel Day-Lewis is that character. Anyway, much harder to accomplish on stage, I'm sure. And uh, who knows? Something I'll continue to think about and bore you with my thoughts on the next time we connect. Uh, As it happens, we've kind of gone over our time here. So um, let's uh, put a button in it. Um, Thank you for your time. Um, We'll look forward to doing this again soon. Until then, thank you for your time. Thanks for listening, and ciao for now.